Jesus, of course, speaking, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. Okay, it's nice to see everyone here. Um, you know who I'd like to be here? I mean, I'd, I'd love it that you're all here, but I would love Pete Doherty and Amy Winehouse to be here. Now, if you don't know who they are, never mind. But I'll tell you why. I actually like them both in some kind of strange way. Uh, Amy Winehouse has enormous talent, which is incredibly wasted. And Pete Doherty as well. Uh, I l read a kind of interview with him where he's basically spent a fair amount of time in jail. He's a singer. He's spent a fair amount of time in jail for drug abuse. And he was being asked, do people pick on you because you're famous? And he said, no, in here, you're all the same. He says, I'm in the detox ward of the jail, apparently, whatever that is. And he said, this is what he said. He says, it's like drugs, really. You're all waiting for the little pill that's going to make things a little bit better. And I thought, you know, that's exactly why you're in there in the first place. You've taken a little pill or snorted something or whatever because you think it's going to make life a little bit better. And it does for a wee while, but then it just goes flat again. And I was thinking about that and I'm thinking about people like Amy Winehouse or the just absolute tragedy that is Michael Jackson, for which there is almost nothing to be admired whatsoever, the pathetic kind of life that he had and not to be envied in any sense whatsoever and, and not to be emulated or copied. But you just think, you know, there's actually something that's a whole lot better. And for Pete Doherty, I, I would want to say to him if, he's, if he was here, I would want to say, listen, there's something that's a whole lot better than that little pill and it lasts a lot longer than that little pill. And uh, he was talking about, of course, getting a pill to come off drugs. And in a sense, what we talk about this morning is something that is true for us, not just in terms of taking drugs, but it's true for us in terms of what I think all of us are looking for. Now, that not may, may not appear immediately obvious from the passage that we read, but I hope you'll see how it is, because we're going to ask the question, how do I know if God is at work in my life? Christians use expressions like Jesus coming into your heart and so on. What does that mean? How do I know whether God's at work in my life? How do we know? Sometimes you'll hear someone say, oh, I feel that God is at work in this church. How do we know whether God is at work in this church? And what about this community? What about this city? What about Dundee? What about this country? How would we know if God was at work? What does it mean? So that's what Jesus teaches about here, and we're going to look at that, and I hope that um, you'll understand the connection. Firstly then, verses 26 to 29 talk about the growth of God's kingdom within our hearts. Now, this parable, for those of you who are Bible scholars, it's a bit unique. 
because it's the only one that Mark alone tells. All the other parables that are in Mark, they're in the other Gospels as well. But this is the only one that Mark alone tells us. And there's just a couple of things that it's there to teach and to stress. First of all, it tells us that there is growth. How do we know that God is working in our hearts? Here is the primary Bible teaching on that. There are some people who experience what I would call an explosion of God's grace and God's love and God's Word in their own lives. I think I told you this last week, my friend Richard Morgan, the atheist who became a Christian, when we were doing a radio program together, he was asked, when did you become a Christian? And he said, at 25 past 10 on the, I can't remember, the 11th of April, and he named it, you know. He said, for me, it was just overwhelming. I was so overwhelmed with the love of God. That is what we might call the Damascus Road experience, so that's probably slightly unfair because if you look at the Apostle Paul, was Paul converted on the road to Damascus? That's interesting because it wasn't until Ananias came and spoke to him that the scales fell from his eyes and so on, and he, was, he arose and was baptized. But it is what we call a Damascus Road experience. It's something that's dramatic. But for most of us, that is not the case. In fact, what's described here is God works in our hearts in a way where it's quiet, it's continuous, and it's almost inevitable. Look what he's saying. We do not make it grow. Uh, David Miller has begun his harvest, and the harvest is a great thing. When you plant your seed in the autumn or in the early spring, you plant the seed, you wait for it to grow. The farmer, I'm sure that David does not sit at his window with a pair of binoculars watching the fields just to check if, if they're growing. You don't do that. You do not plant your seed, and it's Jack and the Beanstalk stuff. You plant the seed, and woof, next night, they're all the way up to the clouds. You plant it, it grows. Look what it says. The seeds, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, although he does not know how. He could be anxious about it, it doesn't matter. It's not going to change whether it grows or not. He could worry about it, it's not going to change whether it grows or not. Well, it's the same here. God's Word gets planted in our hearts and it changes us. We do not need to be anxious and struggle. It is a mystery. We can understand the process of spiritual growth, and we can't reduce it to a formula. You see, what some people want to do, it's like going back to Pete Doherty. Somebody would want to go to him. A Christian would want to go to him and say, well, Pete, if you do A and B and C and D, then you'll end up with E, salvation. You just do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, and we can all watch it, and we can all see it, and it happens. But that's not normally the way. What happens is, look at verse 28, all by itself, the soil produces corn. What the seed needs is the right conditions for growth. Now, here's the amazing thing. No person living by themselves, no woman, no man, no child would seek God by themselves. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Never mind, seek it. It needs God to begin the work and the Lord to bring it to completion. God alone brings life. Go to John chapter 3 and let's read verse 5. 
John 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, that teaching is really, really hard for people to grasp, especially if you are Western middle class and you think, no, it's my choices. I choose what I do. And sometimes we present Christianity in that way as though it's just almost like a lifestyle choice. But that's not often how the Bible presents it. The Bible presents that God's seed is sown in our hearts, that's the seed of His Word, and that God's Spirit works. Some may plant, Paul may plant, Apollos may water, but it is God who causes it to grow or God who gives the increase. We are helpless. Human beings cannot create life. You know, one of the things that if you were a, a total junkie, you recognize you're helpless. You can't do anything. But the thing is, in one sense, that's true for every single one of us. We're helpless. We cannot create life. We need God to bring us life. Now, as I say, for some people, that's very disturbing, and it's something that they don't like because they like to think that they've got God on a shelf that they can come along one day and say, okay, I'll take God, and that will be it. But for other people, it's, this is actually a very liberating teaching. And let me tell you why. It's a, an illustration that Tim Keller uses, a friend of his who's a missionary, I think, to prostitutes in, I think it was in Taiwan or uh, China somewhere. And I can't remember the exact details. But basically, they just couldn't get the Christian gospel. He was trying to explain the Christian gospel to them. They couldn't get it until... He doesn't know why. As a good Presbyterian, he taught them the doctrine of election, God choosing. And they got that because they understood that they were worthless. They understood that they had nothing to offer. That's how they felt about themselves. But the notion that God would choose, not because of any quality or merit within them, but that God would just come and save them was an incredibly liberating one for them. The growth of God's kingdom within our hearts is an incredibly liberating teaching for us, because what it's saying is the Word gets sown in our lives. The Word gets sown in our hearts. You hear the Word, and the Word, God's Spirit through the Word brings life. And that's what stops, for example, someone like me despairing when I'm teaching the Bible, because I don't think I'm particularly clever. I don't think I'm particularly good at it. I don't think that anything I can say can persuade a non-Christian. I go and do debates and discussions, and people say, are you trying to persuade us to be Christians? The answer is no. But what I am trying to do is communicate something of the Word of God, because God's Spirit can take that Word, and even in your stony heart, can bring new life. So what's being taught here? First of all, going back to Mark chapter 4, is that the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. The man here is clearly Jesus, or those who do what Jesus did which is communicate the Word of God. All by itself, the soil produces corn, and so on. So there's growth. Secondly, the growth is gradual. The work of grace goes on in the heart by degrees. There may be only the slightest spark of spiritual life, but it is life. There is progress from the blade, first the stalk, 
then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, verse 28. And it continues to produce gradual fruit. It's like in the, in the Christian life. What happens is this. God shines His light in your heart. As I said, for some it's like a massive explosion. For others, it's as though the curtain is gradually being opened. And almost imperceptibly, you are being changed. In fact, other people notice the change, but, but you don't. You don't notice the change. And your whole life is being changed. And what happens is you don't reach a point. Well, maybe you do reach a point where you say, now I am a Christian, which is great. But it doesn't stop. It goes on. Proverbs 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And that's a wonderful thing because God is still at work. You know, some of these t-shirts that you get are really cliched and awful, but I do like the one, and I'm almost, I was almost tempted. If I'd had it, I would have worn it today, but I don't have it. And it says just, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. And that's the truth. You don't, you see, when you have a kind of view that says, I wasn't a Christian, I was a horrible, miserable person, bang, I became a Christian, now I'm a wonderful person, you haven't grasped it. Because what happens is, we're not Christians, God sows His seed, uh, His Word in our lives, we, it, it, it grows within us, we respond, and as we respond, it grows more, and it just keeps on going. And there's more fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, there's more fruit, there's more life, there's more all the time. That's the harvest. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, it's possible that this is talking about a harvest for judgment. That's certainly what the Old Testament had this whole image of the harvest about. Joel chapter 3, verse 13, for example. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. And then uh, in Revelation 14, that's carried through in verse 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. It's this picture of God judging at the last day, swinging his sickle, cutting the corn, and then separating out the wheat from the chaff. And that's probably what is being referred to here, but I think also what's being referred to here is that the seed is left to grow until it's ready. And there's a great comfort in this for the believer. Death comes at just the right time for the believer. It's at that point and that point alone that we are ready to be with Christ. It's ended. That's the ultimate fruit. So, in one sense, for the unbeliever, the image of death is the image of the grim reaper, destructive, destroying. For the believer, the image of death is one of the harvest being taken home and coming in. It's a great feeling, if you've ever been involved in this, it's a great feeling when the harvest is done when the grain is all in the barn, when it's dried and ready, it's a great feeling. Well, there's a sense in which uh, our life is like that. God's Word works within our lives and continues to work and brings us and ripens us and matures us, not so that we fade away and die, but so that inwardly we are continually being renewed, as Paul puts it, day 
by day. We are then ready to be with Christ. So, I think when Jesus teaches us this, it's just saying, if you're not a Christian, this is how it works. God's, you hear God's Word. You need to be born again through the Word of God. You must respond to the Word of God. You must seek the Word of God. If you are a Christian, you need God's Word to, to keep, if you like, regenerating, to keep working within. Otherwise, what happens is you just become stale. And so many of us as Christians, we've become stale. We've become dry. We've become like we were talking about Mauritania, which is just this massive country, but the vast majority of it's desert. We need the fresh rain of God's Spirit bringing His Word and applying it in our hearts. And that's the tragedy, by the way, in the Christian church. One of the devil's biggest strategies in Scotland today has been incredibly successful, where Christian churches seek to, to copy the fruit of the gospel without getting the root of it. And what I mean by that is this, that the teaching of God's Word is not put high on the list. Yes, people agree, oh, we need that, we need that. But it's not, it's not been a primary focus. And as a result, God's people have been starving in this country. And the church is really, really struggling because of that. But one thing you know absolutely certain, if you're here and you're listening to God's Word, and we pray that God's Spirit is at work, then whatever happens, you are not going to stop that growth. It will grow. God's Word will not return to him empty. And that's why I have just absolutely supreme confidence, not in myself, not in this church, not in you, not in our abilities, not in the circumstances of the culture, not in the denominations, not in the other churches, but my confidence is just absolutely in this. This is the Word of God. It flourished in the Roman Empire when it was really hostile. It flourished in this country when it was as dark as could be, and it flourish. It will flourish again. We just need to communicate and to teach it. And that's what verses 30 and 30 up to 32 are about, the growth of God's kingdom in the world. The second parable there, the parable of the mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed is very simple. It's tiny. It was considered, it was the smallest known plant then, but it grew, or smallest known seed, but it grew into a large plant, so much so that a horse could shelter under it and the birds can perch in its shade. By the way, if you want to know how not to read the Bible, you should read some of the old church fathers on this because they start speculating. What are the birds? The birds are the devils or demons or things like this. No, it's an illustration. That's pretty well it. The birds used to gather in it because they liked the little black seeds of the mustard seed. All that Jesus is teaching here is very simple. The church may be small at times, but it will grow. What matters is the seed. See, you could have a plant that was as big as a, as a mustard plant as it grew, but if it wasn't rooted, to change the analogy, if there wasn't a decent foundation... If it didn't come from the Word of God, it may look fantastic, but it won't last when persecution comes, or when trouble comes, or when suffering comes. But here Jesus says that the kingdom of God, that is the reign of God, that there's going to be a, a sowing, a growing, and a reaping. 
And what Jesus has said here has been proven true many, many times. The church begins small. The New Testament church began small and weak and despised. I'm reading a book just now called, um, what's even called, Justin Martyr, which is, it's called The Apology of Justin Martyr. It's one of the very, very earliest Christian documents. And he's writing to the Roman emperor, and he's pretty brave because he says, you're a godless pagan and the gods you worship are all dumb idols and so on. And you can burn me at the stake if you like. Um, but he then goes on to say, the reason we know the gospel is true is because what Jesus said about it being a tiny seed and growing into something much bigger, that has happened. That is true. Think about that in terms of your own life. Uh, I was amazed at, uh, well, there's Emily there as well, <laughs> but I was amazed at Elizabeth. I came in today, um, Brian and Louise's daughter. She's like, she was, she's still tiny, but she's nowhere near as tiny as she was. And you think, you know, there's this, that's the wrong, I was going to say blob, but not, not what I mean. <laughs> blob is the wrong expression. Um, I mean, you were, if you've seen a, a picture of yourself in, in the womb, you know, or you realize how you actually started, and you see this tiny baby, you know, and one day you grow to be as big as Owen Daly or Hugh Henderson or something, you know, it's just, you realize at one point these guys were, were little blobs too. It's extraordinary. That's what the church is like. The church grows. See, that's important as well. The church begins small, the church grows. That's the normal condition. In the New Testament, there's growth at Antioch and Ephesus and Philippi and Rome and North Africa and in Spain. There's growth in the early church, even in Britain. Throughout history, the church has grown and it still continues to grow because you can't suppress the Word of God. The state of the church in Britain today is a dreadful state, but it's not one that exists throughout the world, and we pray that it's not one that will exist for much longer. I read in an evangelical magazine this week, somebody writing this, I find prayer particularly difficult as it reinforces my, reinforces my smallness. Now, I was meant to be empathetic to this and understand this, and I was doing the Homer Simpson thing, going, duh, what do you expect? Of course, prayer emphasizes your smallness, so why should you find it difficult? I prefer to refer to God as God-self as it frees me from negative gender-based associations. Not him, not even her, but God-self. And I'm thinking, this is in a Christian magazine, this is in an evangelical magazine, and this has been put forward, and it's been put forward with positive comment as though it was some kind of great insight, and I'm thinking, what kind of God are you worshiping? I find prayer difficult as it makes me feel small compared with God. What? I mean, what do you expect? It lacks vision of the greatness of God. And in a sense, that is the problem we have in the church, that our view of God and our view of the kingdom of God is pathetically small. We worship a great God. And the seed of His gospel is so powerful that all the persecution and trouble in the world cannot wipe it out. There's a scientific experiment that people do with dyes. You can take a large bowl of water, you can take some dye, and you can drop it in one by one. Every time you put a drop in, there appears to be no difference. But drop by drop by drop, eventually, the whole bowl is colored. Same thing happens with the gospel. It appears as though we are making no difference. You have some friends around for a meal. You only, there's only one thing that's said. 
You haven't been able to communicate the whole gospel. You feel really guilty. You're on a train. You meet someone. You haven't been, you're at work, and you've been uh, going to the same work for 10 years, and you know that your workmates haven't heard the gospel. Just occasionally, there's something that they've asked you, or something that they've said, or something that you've been able to say, or something that they've, you've seen, but you say it's not enough. Well, it's not enough, except this, that there's the drop, 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 or drip, drip, drip effect, if you like. The birds sheltering in the branches means that, I think, means that people are gathering, people can come from everywhere in terms of the church. The church is a refuge for people from everywhere. We are so like, there's this tiny seed, and we've got to try and get people to fit within that seed. What we don't realize is the seed gets planted, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and you just can't stop the impact of the Word of God. The trouble is when we don't believe that, and so we don't communicate or seek to spread the Word of God or sow the seed. Because I'm a biblical optimist. I believe the church will continue to grow. I think there was a disaster occurred to the British church in the late 19th century where it swung from being hugely optimistic to being incredibly pessimistic and a kind of theology that um, was called Darbyite and so on. But the idea was, you see, that the church is this incredibly small remnant, and we've just got to wait till Jesus comes. We've got to hang on, and so we curl up in a ball, and we're like a hedgehog, and we stick out our spikes, and yeah, if we can just keep ourselves pure until Jesus returns, then Jesus will deal with it all in one big millennial swoop. And it's almost as though the church then said, well, let the rest of the world go to hell, almost literally. And it was just wrong this kind of defeatist mentality about the gospel. The church will continue to grow. The picture that Jesus uses is one that's often used in the Old Testament to describe the growth of an empire. Isaiah 11 verse 9 says this, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Even Mauritania, Pakistan, Dundee, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Daniel 9 is a prophecy of a little seed becoming a great tree and filling the whole earth. Ezekiel 17, 23, on the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. Does that mean that the process is always that the church will always be getting bigger? No. There are times of drought and famine. But this looks forward in terms of the overall to the fulfillment of the ages when all God's people will be gathered in. And that work is continuing even when outwardly things are not going as well. After this, says Revelation 7, 9, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. So we work with confidence waiting for God to fulfill His promise. Zechariah 4.10 says this, who despises the day of small things? What begins small may end up having a tremendous impact. One child, one conversion, one word, one seed, who knows what that may lead to? We cannot dictate what will happen, but we cannot work only on the basis that unless we see immediate fruit right now, we are not going to do what God tells us to do. The great hope in this church, the great hope in all our work is that we will be able to communicate something of the gospel. We are the mustard seeds waiting to grow. 
Let me just say something finally about what verses 33 and 34 are saying in terms of the primary means of growth. It is the whole idea of God's Word being the means for us to grow, and I want to explain it in in a couple of ways. Firstly, um, and this will also give me the opportunity to say thanks to those of you who have prayed for our friend Tom Courtney in Madrid, who has uh, gone through a very serious operation, has been back in hospital, has got back out of hospital again this weekend, and we were speaking to him yesterday, and he said, please convey our thanks to the people in St. Peter's who've been praying for me. And what's happened to him the second time is he had a major operation on his heart uh, where, he explained my medical technical knowledge, stuff was removed from his body, right, and, and very, very serious. And he just thought when he got through that operation, that would be it. And the surgeons and the doctors said to him, no, you're going to really go through a tough time. And he thought, no, 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 that's it done. But he really has. He said, you know, emotionally, he's very weepy. He's just, you know, it's just, he's just really struggled. And he's been told, the surgeon said, we told you this is perfectly normal. Now, we were talking about this. You see, in a sort of Western kind of materialistic mindset, sometimes we think, well, you know, the doctor comes, removes part of our body, and that's it. It's done with. It's, de- it's dealt with. But, you know, you see, we are, we are, we're not dualists. Our body and spirit and everything else is all connected together. Our emotions, it's all connected together. And it does make an enormous difference to us what happens physically. It makes an enormous difference to us in our minds. It makes a difference to our bodies, what happens in our minds and so on. And here, what Jesus is saying is, this may not sound dramatic. It may not sound spectacular. It may not be this sudden instant cure-all that the Word of God, you say, oh, come on, the Word of God coming into my life, you know, yeah, I know it's true. I know it's right. I know I need it, but I just want the Spirit to fill me. I just want to say, well, no, no, this is how the Spirit does because it just permeates through everything. There's a kind of, forgive this expression, but there's a kind of spiritual evolution where just things develop and grow and change. You may laugh at this, but there is research in Helsinki, and I need to speak to Risto about this because it's the Finns who've done this, which says that women deemed that women are growing more beautiful and that men are either getting uglier or staying the same. This is apparently the evolutionary paradigm. Now, let me explain it to you how that's the case. Apparently, women deemed to be more beautiful have 16% more children. Don't ask me how they work this out, and I don't know what a 16% more child is, but never mind. And are 26% more likely to produce female offspring. In other words, somehow evolutionary-wise, women are geared to produce more women who are beautiful. Beautiful women are produced to gear more than they are men. Right, okay. I mean, honestly, I think this is hysterical, but never mind. It's apparently serious scientific research. And the conclusion that's been come to is that the human race, the women will keep getting more beautiful, but the men are going to stay as dumb and ugly as ever. So that's, I just, because of my sexism last week, I thought I would just balance it this week by telling you that. Well, one of the things about the whole notion of evolutionary adaptation and all that kind of stuff, one of the things that's true about it, not speaking in defense of the theory of evolution, 
but the whole notion of how things evolve and change and develop, how humans do that, and we do. That is also true of the church, and it's also true of us as individuals, that as God's Word works in our life, there's a kind of chain reaction that occurs all over the place. See, these sayings here, they are only samples of Jesus' teaching. He spoke as much as they could understand. Calvin talks about Christ accommodating Himself to their capacity. What Christ was doing here was sowing the seed, engaging their interest, and later on they would grasp and understand a lot of what He was saying. He didn't understand everything. And that, by the way, is why it's so important that children be brought here. We have this disaster that we say, oh, we can't have children come into a church service and worship with adults and so on because they won't understand. Well, in that case, you might as well say, let's not have um, non-Christians come in because they won't understand, and then let's not have Christians who are not so mature because they won't understand. In fact, let's not have anyone because none of us really understand the whole thing. But that's not what happens. What happens is the seed is sown. You may not grasp it all. You may not get it all. And there'll be parts of it that would kind of wander over your head and parts of you think, well, I, I... But God can take that and God can use that. We can listen. We can learn. And we receive, as we receive the Word of God, the kingdom grows within us and also out with us. That's the primary means of growth. That's one of the ways by, I want you to pray for the Discovery Camp this week because we want the children who come to our Monday club to start coming to hear God's Word in Sunday school and in church. Because when it's sown in their young lives, it's far more likely to produce fruit much or later on in their lives than if, if they were to wait until quote-unquote they could understand, which is doubtful whether they could anyway. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. It is the Word of God. It is the thoughts of God. God speaks, and the world came into being. God speaks, and the creative Word continues to work. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. We say, ah, it's just words. It's just words. God says, no, 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 it's not just words. It's my Word. You'll fade, you'll wither, you will fall. My Word will remain. You think that the word that goes into you is something that's temporary that will just disappear. I'm telling you that the word that goes into you is something that is permanent, and what will happen is your body will disappear. You will fade. Look at Isaiah 55. As the rain, and verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Why? Because God gives the increase. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 3. We sow, but God gives the increase. So I ask you, you receive the Word of God. What are you going to do with it? Think about it talk about it, 
meditate upon it, act upon it, be doers as well as hearers, receive it, believe it, spread it. The very last phrase of Mark, of the passage we're looking at, tells us that when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. The word for, unsplain, for explain there means untie. And I love that image because I know that you and I get ourselves tied in knots. We just get all twisted up inside, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, in our minds. We're back to Pete Doherty again. We need that pill. But there isn't a pill that can untie us, that can unravel how screwed up we are inside. It's just Christ and His Word. And you know what He's doing? It's like I've got these uh, ridiculous things for earphones, for iPhones. No, I mean, I, I spend so much time unpicking them because they get, how do they get knotted in your pocket? I have no idea. There's a kind of weak creature in something that does, that ties them all together or something. And, and you go, oh. And so you just sit down at the side and you're picking away untying. How do we get knotted up inside? I don't know. We do. And we need something to just come and just pick it gently apart. And the Word of God does that. He unties the knots within. The disciples were with Jesus and asked Him. We need to be with Christ. We need to ask, Lord, what does this mean? We need to say, Lord, speak for your servant is listening. Lord, please explain and let your Word work within me. And can you possibly imagine any circumstance in which Christ would say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You're asking for my word, you're not going to get it. I can't, I can't see that. There's no example, as far as I can see, in the Bible of that. Our God is a gracious and loving God. May we hear and respond to his word. Let's pray.